You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, an appropriate sponsor for this particular podcast, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is one of the most important people in the world to me and millions of Notre Dame fans across the globe. And is Jack Swarbrick, who is athletic director and a vice president, uh, post he assumed in 2008. He is a proud Hoosier, even uh, though he wasn't born here. And he is, without a doubt, at the top of the top of the list of someone you want to be working on your project or your initiative. The list of people I know who think that Jack is an incredible leader is almost endless and Jack, we thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's great to be with you. Well, you were suggested many, many months ago by a friend named Mark Miles. And then uh, you came on the podcast really kind of through the help of someone we just talked to a few weeks ago, and that's uh, Fred Glass. And we know you uh, have a lot going on, and we're very appreciative of your time. No, happy. Happy to do it. And uh, those, of course, are two two. Two people I'm very fond of, Mark and I go way back. We've done a lot of damage together, um, but got some good stuff done along the way too. And that's, I want to talk a little bit about your background and your history and how you got to the university, both as a student and as athletic director. But one of the reasons I started this podcast and, and named it Leaders and Legends is because through my time working in politics and in government in Indiana, especially in uh, the Capitol, how often it came up that when it comes to getting things done, parties and politics, big P politics, simply doesn't matter. I've said this before on the podcast, a man you know or knew very well, I'm sure, P.E. McAllister, who was president of the Capital Improvement Board for a couple of decades, has said, told me many times, that when we were talking about how to do something, that it was no Republican, there was no Democrat, that it was all about the goal of making Indianapolis better. You represent that, as does Fred Glass, as does Mark Miles, the list goes on and on. How is this special? How does this happen in your experience in Indianapolis when people say, we don't care about politics, we care about progress? Yeah, it's... um... 
it, it, it is a very unique um, resource. And I didn't appreciate it for a while. I mean, I, I was attracted to Indianapolis out of law school because I wanted to get engaged in the community. And I saw in the law firm, I joined some great, great role models in that regard. But, and, and I was obviously involved in a lot of the events and activities that went on. But it wasn't until I started consulting with some other cities who came to me because they wanted to do something in athletics that, that I dealt, developed an appreciation of how unique it was. In most cities, when someone comes forward with an idea, they put a target on their back. And, and the immediate reaction is what's in it for them? What are they trying to accomplish? And, and I never once saw that in Indianapolis. It was always, okay, this is an idea that has merit. Let's go. Let's, let, let's try and do it. And, and as I reflected on it, um, sort of having seen that contrast with other cities, it really went back to the groundwork laid by P.E. and Tom Moses, um, Chuck Whistler in my case, um, people who really saw the community's ability to move forward as being dependent on that dynamic. It, it was a resource we could develop that would be unique and frankly, we didn't have a lot of choices for other resources, right? I mean, we, right. we didn't have other things we could leverage quite as effectively as that. And so they really built the culture. And so that when a young person like I was then joined the community, it was, it, it was almost an expectation that you'd pick up that, you know, that approach and, and you'd, you'd engage the same way. And so it's a remarkable, unique and natural part of the Indianapolis culture. You mentioned a few names, and there's certainly a long list. What was it like when you were younger, especially being in the room with those men? Is it we all have our mentors and we all have the people who we look up to. In my case, quite frankly, it is Mark Miles. I think he's the most unique leader I've ever met, non-elected official. And Jim Morris, obviously, who just received the state's highest honor a few weeks ago. But when you're younger and you're in the room with these with these giants who are trying to turn Indianapolis into something that it hasn't ever been in its history, what's that feeling like? Is it I've arrived or I should just be quiet and listen? Well, there were sort of two different levels of it for me. One was the very senior people. And for me, that was Chuck Whistler, partner at Baker and Daniels, who was really the driving force behind the Unigov model. Um, very close to Dick Luger. Um, and when Dick was mayor and Jim Morris was in the mayor's office, Chuck was the attorney who was making so much of that happen. And, and so there was a certain element of awe involved. Uh, the opportunity to work with Chuck was a reason I, I chose then Baker and Daniels and came back to Indianapolis. Once you engaged, you were engaging with this remarkable group of the next generation who weren't that much older than me, um, but had already taken on these roles of shaping the city. And Ted Bohm, Jim Morris, Michael Browning, Mike Carroll, David, uh, Frick. David Frick, Sandy Knapp became a, obviously a critical 
a critical part of that. The reaction to that was less sort of being in awe as how cool is it that people who are seven to 10 years older than me are doing this? Um, and, and it was it was great. I, I felt I felt like I could jump in and contribute. In its own way, the, the list of people, many of whom, quite frankly, we've been lucky enough to have on the podcast, Ted Bohm, David Frick, Michael Browning. Jim Morris. It, it represents, in a way, Indianapolis's own greatest generation. And how fortunate, in your mind and in your experience, because you've worked with in other city, worked with other cities and in various organizations, how unique was that collection of talent that Indianapolis had in those formative sort of Unigov and then post Unigov years? Yeah, it was a remarkable confluence, and and. You know, I've talked to each of them individually um, and, and sort of understand their personal stories, but there was just an element of dumb luck in this, right? I mean, to, they, they all had central Indiana roots, but that dead bones coming from Harvard Law School and a Supreme Court clerkship. He can go anywhere, he can go anywhere he wants to, and he comes back to Indianapolis. Um, you know. Morris Frick could have gone anywhere. Um, the list, of course, goes on. Michael Browning, Detroit-based youth and Notre Dame grad, and he winds up there. So um, I guess we should mention Robert. We should mention Sam, uh, uh, Robert Welch. Yeah, and absolutely. Bill Crawford Bob. and all those yeah. folks. Yeah, no, I, that's the problem with starting names, right? You, <laughs> you 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 quickly think of the twenty you're not listing, but um, you know it was it was not like somebody was recruiting specifically to, toward this goal. It was just that these, this generation of people who saw the, saw things similarly, but importantly came to a community that was in desperate need. That, that, that was one of the things I always talk about when I talk about this dynamic. Um, you know, no one ever develops a transportation system until commuting gets painful enough. Um, well, a lot of what we accomplished couldn't have been accomplished if the state of the city wasn't painful enough. And it was pretty terrible. Um, he, McAllister, described Indianapolis as an oval in a cornfield. Yeah, I was I was probably in my second week of work, um, working late at the law firm and, you know, seven o'clock, seven thirty something. And I decided to go out and get something to eat. I couldn't. I mean, I'm not saying it was hard. I literally couldn't um, <laughs> go get dinner in downtown Indianapolis. I could go to the King Cole and buy a real dinner. Um, but other than that, you know, it, it was shut down uh, by that time of night. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very different place. Did it make you question your choice? I mean, yes. Yeah. yeah. Almost immediately. Yeah, I was like, oh, my God. Um because I had been out in the Bay Area, and so much of the vibrancy that's that is there now was just starting, um, and you could feel it even back then. And, and, and so I got a little nervous when I first came. And frankly, it was the engagement in the community stuff that sort of saved me emotionally and made me think, "Yeah, okay, this is why I came back here. I'm okay." I want to bring back, bring us back to your 
roots of education where you were born. But let me ask a question that I've that I've asked um, a lot of people. What were the thoughts running through your head uh, when you came here? We're going to build a dome stadium and we have no team. Well, um, yeah, there were, there were repeated versions of that, right? I mean, there was a version of that that said, you know, we, while we got a lot of experience with a phenomenal race that we host each year, we're going to host the national sports festival all of a sudden. Um, we're going to host the Pan American games. Um, so, so much of this, and the, the, of course the dome stadium is maybe the most compelling example We're articles of faith, right? You just, you trusted each other, you trusted the concept and, and you just, you sort of said, okay, what do I need to do to help make it work? Was there a, a point where Indianapolis felt like it needed to stop? having the chip on its shoulder that we'll never be Chicago or we can't do this. And there's, there was a sense of a, of a mindset change that of course we could do this. We're the best city to do this. I think there were two moments that, that were sort of critical moments in the journey. One was the opening ceremony of the Olympic sports festival, national sports festival. Um, 1982. Is that right? Yeah. Um, beautiful day. The opening ceremonies couldn't have been better. And, and all of us standing on American Legion Mall that day just felt it. Just felt like we're different now. And, and, and so that was the first critical one. But the second one was the relocation of the Colts. Um, you know, you, you can argue about what's the appropriate place of sport in a culture. But in America, cities are defined as NFL cities or not NFL cities. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of a proxy for being a big city, and um, that was the that was the other time when that uh, I, I was around the fringes of that because David Frick was a partner in the law firm on the same floor as me, and I had some little little bits of work to do on that. But mainly, I was watching David during his really difficult time in his life, uh, given a health issue with one of his children, sort of navigate navigate that until. We, in fact, had an NFL team. True or false? false. David Frick is the most grievously underrated participant in the Indianapolis Renaissance. Oh, I'll go with one of. I think there's so many who, who, like David, never never made it about them. Um, Head bone? Yeah, but, but – without whom you never would have gotten, you know, where you were going. Um, you know, I think about, I think of a Phil Borst, right. Um, veterinarian city council council member who so often was, was critical in getting things done. Right. And, um, never had a high profile. When we interviewed David Frick and that was another Mark miles, like you have to talk to him. And I knew him, a l- I mean, I know him a little bit through politics and we've had lunch and this and that, but I asked him when you were negotiating with the Colts to come here, was the fact that you had a law degree from Harvard 
a difference maker. And if you know David, he, he smiled rather sheepishly and said, I think it made a difference. In other words, he wasn't going to be treated as some sort of Midwestern lawyer. He had the pedigree. How important is that to have the proper pedigree when you're talking to folks from other cities or other organizations may, you know, feel a little puffed up? Yeah, it's 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 a little bit the response to the chip on the shoulder, right? I mean, it it it, it shouldn't matter, but it does. And so that's a great example where, you know, David David brings um a presumption of intellect and skill because of that background that helps them in that situation. So many of these guys had a version of that, right? Guys and gals. Um, and, and again, hard to believe they all managed to find their way to Indianapolis, but the fact that they did and the fact that they could use that pedigree really, really helped. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the Pan American games negotiating with foreign federations around the world. And, you know, my law degree transferred uh, in, in, in those conversations. So it, it helps. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Jack Swarbrick. He was born in Yonkers, New York, which I think is just north of the Bronx. Is that right? It, it, it is immediately north. So Rafael Sanchez, if you know Rafael from Channel 6, mm-hmm. he is from the Bronx, as he's proud to say. And he's going to come on the podcast, so I'll have to ask him about that. Uh, did you grow up a Yankees fan? No, I was. Uh, I have the distinction of having attended the Mets' very first home game ever. Um, my grandfather took me out of uh, – kindergarten and we went to the polo grounds and watched the Mets play. So I was sort of hooked for life as a Mets fan. I was a Mets Jets guy back then. So the, so the Mets first game wasn't at Shea stadium. It was at the old polo grounds. That's right. Shea, Shea didn't exist. I, I believe it was two seasons at the polo grounds and it was an amazing, you know, back then they didn't help new franchises at all. It, build their roster they were going to make them pay penance for years and so it was all the old Brooklyn Dodgers Duke Snyder was in right field Gil Hodges was at first base uh, marvelous Marv Throneberry was playing I mean it was just it was um it was like a light beer commercial yeah it was a bunch of, it was a bunch of guys who, who who were only playing because two new franchises had been created so when Casey Stingle said can't anyone here play this game did you yeah. feel his pain Oh boy, did I! There were some, there there were some remarkable characters on, on that. I could tell stories all day, but I remember uh, the catcher Choo Choo Coleman, uh, when asked about a pass ball, explaining that they didn't pay him to catch fifty nine foot curves. Um, <laughs> so nineteen sixty nine. Is that not the greatest year of your life? It's got to be in the top three. The Jets win the Super Bowl. The Mets beat the Orioles and win the World Series. Yeah, I got to be careful answering that question as the athletic director of Notre Dame. But yes, um, or father. That, that was a, that was a really a really special year. I was I was a Hoosier then, but uh, I still lived and died with those teams. 
and you've kept kept up since you've never transferred allegiance one way or the other. It's it's tough to give up the teams of your childhood. I know. Yeah, I didn't have any trouble giving up the football allegiance to the Colts. That was easy. Um, and, and, and so that's where all my allegiance lies. But while the Mets have made it hard, I have remained a Mets fan. You and Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. You graduated from the University of Notre Dame with a degree in economics in 1976. How did you end up at Notre Dame? And what are some of your fondest memories? Because those were, assuming you started in the fall of 72? Yeah. You had some pretty remarkable uh, sporting events to either attend or cheer on from the outside. Yeah, no, I was, I was here for two national championships. Um, I was, I, I remember, whoops, sorry. I remember like it was yesterday, um, the morning word broke that Ara resigned. Um, people were running around campus telling each other that Ara had resigned. Um, and that was 74 was his last year. Yeah. Um, Went out in style though. 1311. Is that right over Alabama? I think that's, yeah, I think that you may, you may have me on the score there, but I think that's right. Um, I was there when we broke the UCLA winning streak in basketball. You were in the, you were in the the arena. I was, when I took this job, uh, my first day walking in the building, I ran into Digger Phelps and Digger didn't say hello. He said, were you there? Um, that was his. And I knew people, what it, who, people who I don't knew. know, UCLA had an 88-game winning streak uh, in the wooden Bill Walton era yeah. that Notre Dame broke at Notre Dame in a phenomenal upset, um, which is interesting because if you're a Notre Dame football fan, you also know that the longest football winning streak is by Oklahoma, 54. 55, 56 games, something like 57, which was also broken by the University of Notre Dame. What was it like to be in the arena for that game against you know, UCLA? Mainly what I remember was how incredibly hot it was. Um, and I assume that had something to do with how we dialed up the temperature in the arena to, <laughs> to, to make it really hot. But um, I was right up against the, the ceiling. In, in the bleachers and um, I was just soaked. I remember, remember how hot it was. You asked about how I got here. Um, it's, it's sort of an interesting story. Um, I, I didn't know what I was doing when I applied to college and didn't, didn't have a lot of family experience. And so I applied to Indiana university because I lived in Bloomington, Indiana. And I applied to Notre Dame because I was an Irish Catholic kid from New York and uh, got into both places. And only after I got in did I check the tuition. And I realized, <laughs> I realized immediately I wasn't going to the University of Notre Dame. And so I actually wrote Notre Dame a letter, which in retrospect was sort of a bizarre thing to do. But again, I didn't know what I was doing. Wrote them a letter declining their invitation to, to come to Notre Dame. And um, two days later, out of the blue, I get in the mail a notification that I was the recipient of an Indiana state scholarship that could be used at any public or private institution in the state. Um, and I complete mystery to me, right? I just, I had this, I realized it meant I could go to Notre Dame. So 
I called the admissions office. I started to go on this long explanation of why I was calling. And the guy says, I'm reading your letter now. And I said, well, can you rip that up? And he said, I'd be happy to. So fast forward to when I get this job. And one of the pleasures of this job was my ability to go visit with Ted Hesburgh from time to time, the legendary president of the University of Notre Dame. I'm not sure why, but in one of the conversations, I said to Ted, what, what was your relationship like with Herman Wells? Herman, of course, was the Ted Hesburgh of Indiana University, longtime president there. And Ted went on to talk about how fond he was of Herman Wells and what a great relationship they had. And then he says to me, you know, the thing I'm most proud of about my relationship with Herman is we conned the Indiana State Legislature into creating a scholarship program that could be used at any public or private institution in the state. And I realized Ted Hesburgh had made that scholarship possible for me. And here I was full circle working back at the University of Notre Dame. When was the first time you stepped on campus when you started school or, or beforehand? I had come up for a spring game for the spring game. Um, I played on a very successful high school football team. I don't take any credit for that. They were just really, really good. And uh, we were undefeated through 70 games, 70 some games. My last one was 56. We, 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 we were finished the streak at 56 and then other teams continued to win. Um, but my coach called and the football folks at Notre Dame and said, you know, I've got a couple of kids from the team would like to come up to the spring game. So we're treated really well. And, that was my first first time I stepped on campus. Um, was seeing that spring game, and then I didn't step on campus again until I showed up with my my suitcase. If anyone listening has not gone to a Notre Dame spring football game, they are they are done up right. They're a lot of fun, more fun than I don't want to say more fun than you would expect, but you certainly couldn't. You would have an an awesome time. It's it's a lot of fun to attend. Uh, you left Bloomington. Indiana University is a pretty beautiful campus, to say the least. Um, but something about being Catholic and walking around the campus of, of Notre Dame is incredibly special, whether it's Touchdown Jesus or the Basilica or obviously the Grotto. Uh, what were some of your thoughts as, a, as just a Catholic kid walking around what is clearly, in my view, I'll only speak for myself, the premier Catholic university in the world? Yeah, um, it, it was more the infusion of faith generally into the place. Every dorm has a chapel, and you'd go to Mass in your own dormitory. Uh, your, the rector was a priest that you got to know well. Um, and, and, and so it was, it, it was such a part of your life here, uh, the theology classes you took, etc. And, and so in that sense, it was very comfortable and, and very normal for you. Although I must say uh, the Irish part of my Irish Catholic heritage was probably as important in the decision-making. My, my, my grandfather was a police commissioner, Yonkers, New York. He was the archetypal Irish <laughs> and uh, boy, he rooted for Notre Dame. And, and he had, he had never been West of the Hudson river in his life. Did he live for you to see you attend? Uh, he did not. 
You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is Jack Swarbrick, who is a vice president and athletic director at his alma mater, the University of Notre Dame. Jack, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire? What a great question. Um, I've got sort of two answers to that. One is... Um, Indianapolis benefited from a remarkable succession of mayors, really, really bright mayors, Dick Luger, Steve Goldsmith, Bart Peterson, et cetera. And, and, and so I was always impressed consistent with what we were talking about earlier, the ability of, of those people who could have done any number of things to, to make that their priority. And, and we were incredibly well served to have such talented mayors. But, but I guess the person I'd mentioned, because I just, I just think she'll never get enough credit, is Sandy Knapp. Um, the Sports Corporation Initiative doesn't work if Sandy isn't selected as the first executive director. Um, she shaped that into what it became. And, and if you're building an economic development strategy around something, as we were with that, um, you really had to have a right person at the helm. And uh, she was the right person. And uh, so much of the success. I mean, we, we could all dream. We could all bid. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody had to pull it off. And uh, she did. Another guest you've had on the show I saw is a logical successor to her, Allison Melanchthon, who's had the, the same impact with what she's run. Um, and they're, they're, you know, mentor and mentee. She just has the Midas touch. It's just unreal how incredibly talented and gifted and kind she is as a person and as a leader. Yeah, people love love working for her. Um, just a just a great strength. So it's probably no surprise that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is is having its its rebirth and surge in town ta- and in popularity with a leadership team of. Roger Pinsky, Mark Miles, Doug Bowles, and Allison Melanchthon. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I was uh, – Mark, Mark knows talent. And so I knew, uh, I knew Allison was a likely target as soon as he announced he was going to do that. <laughs> you mentioned being at Notre Dame and, and a lifelong fan. So do you have a favorite Notre Dame win, football victory? Um, you know, probably for me, it was, uh, a home game here where we ended USC's 22 game winning streak. Um, Eric Pennock had a 70 some yard run that sticks in my memory even to today. Um, but that was a big upset. And, and because I was, because I was a student, you feel a certain ownership. I mean, I could, I could watch those national championship victories on television, but it wasn't the same. As as being in the stadium for that game, um, what, year was, what year was Pinnock seventy three? Right, 
And I got to know Pat Hayden pretty well subsequently um, through his work with NBC for Notre Dame, but then as the AD at USC. And I I never tired of talking about that game with him. (laughs) Unfortunately, those were rough years for Notre Dame when it came to USC. Uh, That's right. So I bring that that one up every chance. (laughs) So I guess I have to ask you the uh, opposite question. You close your eyes and think of the loss that you, as a fan, just still brood over. Um, you know, it's um, frankly, it's less as a fan than as an athletic director. I mean, I you have a host of those as an athletic director because what what people don't understand for the most part about this job is how close you get to the students how well you know them and you're crushed because Notre Dame lost, but you're much more crushed because those kids didn't win. And Mm -hmm. I can, I can think about the women's final fours. We lost. I can think about the losing on the opening face off of overtime against Duke in the lacrosse national championship. A moment that sticks in my mind. Um, I remember a couple of very painful football defeats in my first two years here um, that, that were that were challenging, uh, and, and because it was on my watch, and I had to I had to manage our manage our way forward. Do you ever look at Brian Kelly, who's the coach of the football team, and go, "Why do you have this job? Like, why do you have this? Why have you willingly accepted all this pressure?" Of, of one of the few national fan bases. I mean, I'm prejudiced. I, I think Coach Kelly is doing a terrific job. And obviously there's just kind of a different standard with Nick Saban at Alabama. And I don't think that's a out-of-this-world statement given the national championships he's won. But, but Brian Kelly is in a unique position of all the coaches in all the major sports. And he seems to handle it remarkably well. Am I off base on that? Or sometimes you just put your arm around him and like, you know, Brian, you came here, you took it, you knew what you're getting into. Yeah, no. Um, you know, I, of course would love to tell you that I saw all this coming when I hired him. Um, that would be a gross exaggeration, but, but the key elements of his makeup and his personality were obvious back then. Um, and they've served him so well. One is um, he's got a great balance to his life and he was able to demonstrate that back then and he's, and he's maintained it. Um, so he's less likely candidate for burnout than anybody who'd be in a position like this. The other is he's incredibly inquisitive about how to get better. He's never satisfied. And, you know, when we bottomed out at four and eight, a lot of people were thinking we should make a change. Um, Brian was all, Brian looked at every element of the program. Nothing was off, off limits. Um, And that was so much fun to be part of that process with him. Because what you can't have at that moment is a coach who comes in and is defensive Mm -hmm. and wants to tell you it was, you know, it was just a blip and we'll be fine. Uh, instead I was partnering with a coach who 
who, who said, We're, we are going to look at every element of this program, figure out how to make it better. And he did. The uniqueness that is Notre Dame is, is commented on on national TV broadcasts. You read about it if you read about the program or the school. You feel it even as a fan, uh, as a Catholic, and I'm assuming as an Irishman when you're on the campus. Can you define it for us, this uniqueness? No, and, and Lou Holtz, of course, gets a lot of credit for for coming up with the phrase that sort of addresses that by by saying, you know, for those who don't know it, there's no explanation. And for those who do, there's no explanation. Um, <laughs> you know, they both it works both ways. Um, it, it, there's there's a unique sense of belonging and community at the, in this place. There are great institutions all over the country, and my job has allowed me to see a lot of them. But but no place has a sense of belonging quite like this one does. Maybe short of the academies. I think it's a great point. Same dynamic there, but you know, everybody here lives in a residence hall for three years. If I'm in the airport and someone sees me, the second question I'm going to get is what hall do you live in? Even now, all these years later, right? I mean, it's, there's, there's that sense of this place. So while it's a stunningly beautiful campus and it, it has some unique values born of its, uh, religious identification and its private school nature. It's much more about this remarkable sense of community. And, 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 and that was the common thread for me between my decision to come here and my decision to go to Indianapolis out of law school. I, I wanted that sense of community again um, that I felt so strongly here. I wasn't convinced that I could necessarily find it in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle or Denver, where I was also interviewing. But I knew based on my summer experience that I could find it in Indianapolis. We've had a few Notre Dame uh, graduates on the podcast, Judge David Serto, Michael Browning, and Chris Zorich, Reggie Brooks. And they all talked about how the school changed their lives. Is that something that you feel about your time here? or time there, excuse me, at the university as a student. Uh, you graduated from Stanford in 1980 with a law degree. Uh, you, would you have gone to Stanford if you hadn't had the Notre Dame experience? Was it that dispositive for you? Yeah, that's right. I would not have. Um, I was even less informed about my law school choice than I was my, under, my <laughs> undergraduate choice. I uh, was fortunate to get into a number of law schools. And again, I hadn't given it any thought. I took myself to the uh, the counseling center one Saturday morning to review the brochures of the law schools and try and I didn't even know what size they were or anything. And the Stanford brochure, which I have on my home bookshelf to this day, had a picture of a palm tree on the cover. It was February in South Bend. I said, I'm going here. Um, so in that sense, Notre Dame led me to Stanford, but, but the other sense was, um, a willingness to take a risk. I, I didn't, I didn't think twice about, I, I never visited Stanford. I went out for the, when classes were to start and I flew into San Francisco and had my two bags and showed up at, at a dorm there. Um, 
Notre Dame prepared me for that, right? I didn't feel like, well, I'm not sure I can do that. I, I'd just gone to an undergraduate school where my, my hallmates and friends were from all over the country. Notre Dame famously plays Stanford every year in football. Is there a little wager between your two alma maters? The AD of Stanford is you get a little needling about who you supporting today, Jack, your <laughs> Notre Dame or Stanford. Yeah, no, it's of course uh, we can't bet. So we don't do that, but uh, um, it's funny when I was in, in, before I took the job, I, I wound up attending a number of games at both places. Um, and, and, and I'd always have this weird dynamic where I, I, I sort of identified with the visiting team, just sort of something, I guess, fundamentally antisocial in me. Um, and, and I mentioned this to Father John when he hired me. And he said, do me a favor and don't say that publicly. Uh, <laughs> from doing it but yeah once once I had this job there was there, there was no torn loyalty at all and what, what was most notable was there could not be two football experiences more different in life than Notre Dame and Stanford um, meaning everything about the approach to the game um, the Stanford experience was so much about the band and sort of only marginally marginally back then only marginally about the outcome of the game. I mean, the band was as crazy as you could imagine. And uh, it was, it was a big part of Saturday out there. And you graduated before Elway got there. Did you, are you friends with John Elway? Do you know him a little bit? I have met John, but no, we're not friends. There was a, a, I I can't remember the circumstances why I was there. Um, but it was probably John's first year. And um, I was at the sunken diamond and I'm sitting out in right field, just watching the game. And I don't know who he is. And somebody hits the ball over his head. He goes out to the fence, picks it up, throws a guy going out first to third by 10 feet. And I swear the ball never got more than like 12 feet off the ground. It was the, it was an absolute rocket. I was there. I overlapped with John McEnroe there. Uh, That was my next thing. That was my next person. Yeah, I, I watched. I only saw John play once in a match against Cal, and I know this comes as a shock, but John just abused the guy. I mean, not only was he much better, but he he made sure his opponent knew he was much better. The other famous uh, Stanford alum I was going to ask you about is uh, Heisman Trophy winner Jim Plunkett. Did you know him? Do you know him at all? He was way before your time. Yeah, no, he was. I mean, I I remember him coming back to campus, and he had such a great personal story. Um, but no, I didn't. Didn't know Jim. You mentioned earlier talking about this was a question I had written down, which you've led me right to, and that is the law firm of Baker and Daniels. It's a it's a terrific firm with so many uh, leaders, past and present, including my former boss Murray Clark. When I was at the Indiana Republican Party, he was the chairman, and I was the communications director. Talk a little bit about some of the folks that you met there, and why Baker and Daniels. Then Baker and Daniels is such an incubator, such a promoter of of talent and civic involvement. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can do the history justice, although I do know the founders ran against each other for governor. So that's that's sort of as, <laughs> as 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 engaged as you can get. But 
so many of the names we've talked about today, I know as partners at Baker and Daniels. So Chuck Whistler was a huge reason for my decision to go to Baker and Daniels. But Ted Bone was there. David Frick was there. David Shane, who was very involved in the community, was there. Um, Fred Glass wound up joining the firm. Uh, it was a long was list. Mitch, 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 Mitch Daniels. Yeah, Mitch was there for a while. Um, Murray. And, and so there was this remarkable culture reflective of the city's culture of being involved. Um, and, and I alluded to it earlier, but I never felt like I needed to ask permission. I, in retrospect, law firms don't operate that way today. But, you know, hey, I'm going to devote all this time to the community. I hope that's OK with somebody, but, you know, but but it felt like it was because that's what everybody else was doing. A lot has been said, not altogether in a supportive tone, of Indianapolis's emphasis on sports, tourism, conventions. But let's maybe stick to sports as a generator of revenue, as a as a means of making the city more attractive to visitors. It's a strategy that's you would be hard pressed to say it hasn't worked considering what Indianapolis was like in 1972, 74 until the last few years. Do you, have you always supported that strategy? And if someone said, you know, Jack, why has this worked and why is it worth spending all this money and making all these public investments in sports teams and arenas, et cetera? Uh, how would you defend that? And are you, someone who bristles at the criticism that we've done too much in that arena. Yeah, no, I don't bristle at it at all. Um, there, there are two really important things to understand. The first is that the so-called city committee that came up with this economic development strategy didn't do it because they were sports fans. They studied a host of opportunities or possibilities in logistics in insurance, in a whole bunch of industries to try and find one that might work. I believe it was Ted Bohm who, in the course of that, identified the fact that Congress was passing the Amateur Sports Act. It was going to create a whole new industry. It was going to spin off 40 plus national governing bodies. And so this had little to do with sports and it had everything to do with canvassing what was available, finding the best opportunity and embracing it. And, and it turned out to be a great choice. The second thing that's critical to understand is, and I've had the opportunity to make this point to a lot of communities in America, nobody should ever give up a franchise once you have it. That you, you, no matter what the situation, once you give up a franchise, you never get it back. New York doesn't ask itself whether it should invest in Broadway. No. It's going to invest in Broadway um, because it owns that franchise. The, the Bay Area is not asking itself whether it should be, support technology, right? It owns that franchise. We became the owners of this franchise. And it became so important because it became such a part of our identity not to allow it to, to slip away. 
it didn't mean you could operate it at the same level as you once did, but you needed to stay invested. And I'm so happy to see, you know, the Big Ten championships, the college football playoffs coming, what the city did with the Final Four. That's all part of maintaining the franchise. And communities that develop one, they are really hard to develop. And, and you know, sometimes it's a pro sports franchise, right? I mean, you know, cities that St. Louis gave, you know, lost the Rams and you, you, you can't reverse that. Um, those become really important decisions. So for those two reasons, I think it's right. As I tell people all the time, we took that model. And just as I was leaving town, we took that same model and converted it to life sciences. Um, and that, that deservedly drew more attention. Um, but the model wouldn't have been available if we hadn't done the sports initiative. So there's one additional recurring theme is the importance of the Indiana sports corp. You were the chairman for about, I think nine years, the uniqueness of it, the leaders, uh, the people who have, uh, worked and headed it we've as guests we've had ted bohm and we've had allison melangdon and and ryan vaughn how important was the sports corp to to be the clearinghouse the driver the organization that emphasized this as much as anything yeah it was critical um, and again some really smart people figured out the form it should it should take um how to set it up so it could operate effectively, attract resources. Um, but it's where the relationships were held, right? It's, it, it, you know, all of us who were volunteers would come in and out, but Sandy and her team, Allison, they were the ones building the daily relationship with the staffs at the NBA or the NFL or the NCAA. And, and, you couldn't have done it without that vehicle. If I had told you when you came to Indianapolis, is that 1980, 81? I'm guessing right out of law school. That in 30 years, not only would Indianapolis host the Super Bowl, it would completely redefine what it meant for a city to host a Super Bowl, you would have said. Oh, maybe in 80, I would have been skeptical, but by the mid 80s, I wouldn't have been. Um, you know, we had, we, we really had a sense that nothing was too big for us. The Pan American Games was a bigger miracle than the Super Bowl because we had no time to prepare inadequate resources, um, but we still pulled it off. So, yeah, I mean, could, couldn't have seen it in 80, but. By 86, 87, I would have had no, no trouble seeing it. The Pan Am Games are frequently mentioned as as a watershed event in the history of Indianapolis. My only participation was the fact that I was stationed at Fort Ben Harrison and had to move out of my barracks so that the athletes could move in. And none of us had heard what the Pan Am Games, didn't even know what they were. But why was that so important? Um, part, part of it was just the scale of it, you know, demonstrating we could do it because it's bigger than the Olympics in terms of the number of sports and number of events. Um, really? It's yeah. bigger than the Olympics? Yeah. They were indiscriminate. They'd add any sport in any event. Um, 
but the, the bigger reason, the bigger significance was the 27,000 volunteers. We needed to enlist so many people to pull that off that, that identifying those people, bringing them into the volunteer network, having them become passionate about what we were doing became the foundation for so much that followed, right? I mean, we had volunteers reaching out to us all the time saying, what's next? Come on, I, I, I wanna be involved. And, and that provided this great groundswell. Jim Delaney, former commissioner of the Big Ten, a good friend, once said to me that Indianapolis had an unfair advantage because it had professionalized volunteer volunteerism. <laughs> um, Allison said that about the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't know what the percentage of overlap was between the two events, but it was pretty high. You were involved at the Sports Corp as a chairman when the NCAA decided to move its headquarters here. How big of a booster to the city of Indianapolis to have the NCAA here? In other words, the outside perception of Indianapolis as a big league city, how much was that enhanced or was it immaterial when the NCAA decided to move from Kansas to Indianapolis? Uh, no, that was 18 years of my 18 months of my life. Um, <laughs> on, on two occasions, the firm literally let me go pursue these things. One was the Super Bowl bid and the other was, was the Pan American game or the, uh, the NCAA. Um, it was critical for this reason. Um, I mean, it had great economic impact. It was a phenomenal catalyst for the development of the White River State Park. It, it really accelerated mm. the development of the park. But the biggest reason was it brought America's college and university presidents to Indianapolis. Um, and people don't appreciate, even yeah. to this day, how much that happens. And, and if you're talking about a subset of people you want to try and impress, and have them have a favorable impression of your city, that's a pretty good group um, to have visit your city on a regular basis. You were involved with the bid by then Mayor Peterson to secure the Super Bowl. Um, I think you and Fred Glass and the whole host of incredible leaders uh, worked together, and eventually that was – we did not get selected. That was the year Dallas did, and they got rewarded by having the Super Bowl in the middle of a gigantic ice storm, which, you know, just broke our Hoosier hearts, I'm sure. Even though I have to say that same weekend, we got 10 inches of snow when they predicted three inches of snow, so we wouldn't have been in much better shape. Um, talk to us a little bit about that process, because it was another one of those that brought the city together, that united people. And the reason that I know that was because as communications director at the Indiana Republican Party, my boss, Murray Clark, had me issue a statement praising you and Mayor Peterson for the effort that and Fred Glass that fell just short the process. And then and then how you were vice chairman, I think, with Mark Miles uh, and the Ballard effort, if memory serves. Yeah. Uh, talk uh, about the, the effort previously and then being involved in what was the winning bid. Robert, I'm going to do that, but then I'm going to have to jump on another call. So let me uh, let me let me try and address both those and, and then get on this call. Um, I learned a lot losing the first time. Um, one is that Jerry Jones was a much better politician than I was. 
we went to bed. <laughs> we went to bed with enough votes to win, and mm. we lost by two votes the next day. And and Jerry had turned those votes overnight, and very skillfully. I, I don't want to suggest anything otherwise. But the other thing we learned, and we got great counsel from a person who worked at the NFL, was in charge of the Super Bowl, Frank Sapovitz. Frank said, when, yeah. you do, when you do this again, embrace who you are. Don't run away from it. Celebrate winter. Celebrate being, don't, don't tell us about how all the hotels are connected. Tell us about how you're going to embrace the winter. And we did. We, we turned it into an outdoor Super Bowl. Now, God blessed us with extraordinary weather for the second one. But it was a much more genuine bid in that regard. And um, it, it, everything about it, I'm, I'm, not only because of the weather, but we were, we were much better prepared for the second time around. Thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today has been Notre Dame Vice President and Athletic Director, Jack Swarbrick. Jack, thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to end this podcast uh, before I ask for tickets. <laughs> thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.